Hello and welcome to The Better Business Show with me, Tom Idle. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up this week. A few years back, we had this a letter of complaint. We don't get many of them. And the, the, the essence of this letter of complaint was a guy phoned up. He'd, he'd driven all the way from Cambridge and said, if only, you know, your staff should not have let me just book in for one day. They should have insisted that I came for longer. Yes, we're in the company of Andy Middleton this week, founder of TYF, an organisation that believes play is the best way for businesses to start to change the world. Stay tuned. Yes, welcome back. This is episode 27 of The Better Business Show. Thanks for coming back to us. If you're a new listener, welcome. Um, we hope you enjoy this week's show. And, uh, and don't forget to check out our back catalogue of uh, the previous 26 episodes. I'm sure you'll find something there that, uh, that takes your fancy. Um, so yeah, our usual format this week, we're going to hit you with another great story in the form of TYF. Uh, more on that shortly. Uh, we'll also have our 10-minute news roundup with Vicky Knowles at the end of the show. So stay tuned for that. Uh, and we'll also have the third part of our Big Ideas for a Sustainable Future uh, series in association with Terrafinity. And Joss Tantrum will be here with the third part of that. So all of that coming up very soon. If you haven't already done so, please do sign up to our weekly newsletter. Uh, you can find the form you need to fill in on uh, on the website. It's, we just need your email address. It's not even a form. Just go to betterbusiness.show. Uh, the Better Business Show cheat sheet, not easy for me to say, uh, mentioned once or twice before on this show, is coming uh, next week. Uh, it's a free download that will present all of the great insights and tips and advice from the guests that we've had on the show since we launched in early February of this year. Um, and it's something that we're going to be producing every month and constantly update it for you to get all that great insight in one place as a reminder and a reference point uh, for all the great things you hear on the show as the weeks play out. But it's only available to newsletter subscribers, um, so make sure you do sign up for that. It's head over to the, the homepage, uh, scroll beneath the, the 27 episodes that are all listed there, uh, and give us your email address, and we'll send that to you starting next Friday. Now, there's a good chance you'll be familiar with the sorts of things we're going to be talking about on today's show with today's guest. We're going to be meeting uh, Andy Middleton, the co-founder and uh, director of TYF, which is a company based right out on the west coast of the UK in, in Wales. And it's a company that specializes in kind of corporate away days, adventures for groups, uh, connecting people better with nature. And Andy will probably explain a, a better than I can about uh, what, what TYF is all about in today's show and what it specifically does. Uh, but one of the themes that we'll be discussing today is how, how play can help us really understand the planet and help us better connect with the things that are important to us uh, and crucially how we can take that back to our businesses uh, in a way that's very much in, in tune with planetary needs and, and gets business leaders to start thinking completely differently. But what's the point of these adventure activities? I mean, plenty of us have been on these, you know, sorts of corporate away days where you end up doing all sorts of weird and wacky things, uh, which, you know, largely are completely unrelated to our businesses. And, and then we often forget what we've learned anyway. Uh, but there's a brilliant moment in today's show where Andy explains the difference between companies that mindlessly send their staff off for these types of away days and those that actually make use of TYF and all that it does in, in exactly the right ways. And TYF says that it helps organizations with their innovation and sustainability by offering what it calls life-changing adventures. And Andy gives some examples of how lives have been changed, but it, you know, it's a bold, big, you know, quite a claim actually for a, for a business to be, to be saying that. Anyway, have a listen to, to the TYF story, and as ever, let us know what you think of it. Anyway, here's Andy. So Andy, thanks for agreeing to be part of the Better Business Show. Uh, we're gonna find out all about TYF. Uh, so I think a very good place for us to start is to find out exactly what it is you do. And there's a, there's a couple of clues on the homepage of your website, two strap lines that I quite like. One was good for life. Uh, and another one says we play for planet. Uh, tell us tell us about TYF. Great. So th and thanks for having us on. It's been a, it's a pleasure to to share ideas with like minded people. And that's I guess as a good as a good start point, sharing ideas with people who care is is a real driver for us as a business. And it's been part of an evolution of where we where we go from. So my background way, way back is I was a geographer, so I learned about Earth systems. And you know, since university 30, 30 more years ago, I've been more aware than ever about how fragile those are. 
And having worked in worked consulting and stuff in big businesses, I realized that doing business in a different way and proving that it's possible mm. is a really essential part of earning the right to walk the talk. Yeah. You know, walk, walking the talk, rather, is essential to kind of earn the right to influence others and ask them to change. It's, it's not fair if I ask people to do things that I don't even know work myself. Mm. So, so what we've been working on you know, for really hard for like the last 15 years is to shape our business at TYF into a shining example of what the future looks like in business. And, and as a core business, we, we have a retail operation that gives people clothing and accessories to go and play in nature. Okay. So we, we sell Patagonia, Braintree, um, and a whole bunch of other bands selling organic and ethically, ethically made clothing. We take 10,000 people a year to play in nature. That's where the Play for the Planet stuff comes in. Right. We do that through co-steering, a sport that we invented 30 years ago, sea kayaking, surfing. And our job there is to act as a dating agency for nature. Okay. okay. It's our job to get people to use play and time you know, doing an outdoor sport to get people to fall in love with nature so deeply that they care for it in everything that they do, as we do with a loved one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what's the name of the sport that you, you created? It's called co-steering, and it's this kind of madcap exploration of the boundary between ocean and land. Okay. So quit people in a wetsuit and a buoyancy aid and a crash hat and go on a two- or three-hour journey right as basically as close as the sea to you, as you can go. And you climb along, scramble in amongst the waves, dodge the, rock, dodge the rocks, and when you get to a place that you can't climb, jump in, swim across the next bit, and it's, it, it's, it's amazing. It sounds, uh, yeah, it sounds very hair raising. Um, it's, like, it's like it's like it's like kayaking without a kayak. Okay, you know? okay. So, so there's lots of different activities on offer, um, but you do cater for for kind of businesses, don't you? As well as the individuals and and other groups, I guess. What what, what types of people come along to to your centre? Well, I mean, it's, that's a really that's a good that's a good question. So we 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 work in in kind of with three main populations, if you will. So we're we're trying to create a much faster generational change by teaching young people, kids and kids and kids and students, the skills that they would need to end up doing completely different work when they grow up. And we're we're trying to flip that so that give the, give them the skills to change their parents' behaviour by, you know, through love and affection and and working in different ways. So we work with uh like forty schools and and you know three or four thousand children a year, try to give them the kind of revolutionary thinking and confidence that will allow them to know how to solve better problems in different ways. So we're working, for instance, with University of Cambridge and the best sixth form in the UK to take kids into work manufacturing workplaces where they look around, spot things that don't seem to be working as well as they could, pitch those back to the owners of the businesses. Um, and the last group we worked with before they'd even got out the school door and saved the school 40,000 quid in energy. So our, our goal would be to see every single child in the country leaving school with something like 300 hours, 300, 300 days of active impact problem solving. So taking real problems from businesses and community around them, applying the maths and the writing and everything else they do in the curriculum to stuff that actually matters and pitching that back to the owners of the problem so that they leave school knowing that they have the ability to solve complex problems in creative ways. Right, right. So that's one population. The next population is is a bunch of people, are, the, are people who come to St. David's in here on the west coast of Wales on holiday, want to do just cool stuff outdoors, so they haven't necessarily booked in on, a, on an experience because of the teach and run nature, and that's where the dating agency bit comes in. So we want to deliver that experience in a way that is better than it could have been by itself anyway, and get them to think really differently about the health of the oceans, the health of nature by foraging as you're walking to go into a kayaking session or getting people to eat seaweed from the ocean and reminding them that what's in the seaweed is a consequence of what we've put into the ocean in the first place and that kind of thing. So really gently putting out the breadcrumbs of information that allow people to go, never thought of that before. And are always trying to leave the space that we arrive in as you want to find it next time rather than say, well, it's not my litter, I'm not going to pick it up. So mm -hmm. if we go to a beach, we always check a little bit away with us and try and make it, leave, you know, leave the world as you want to find it next time. Mm -hmm. And then the third population is applying, I suppose, 
what we've learned in the business and what we've learned by working with others to work with businesses and government to give you know, people at all levels in those organizations the confidence and insights and skills to, to raise their level of ambition to, so, to, to the scale it needs to be to solve the problems that we know are coming down the line. Mm. So you know, I personally work, I do a lot of work with, I work with ministers and leaders in, in civic society to help them make the most of what they're doing. And as a, for instance, we're working with a, a fellow B Corp neighborly here in Bristol um, to try and co- much better coordinate biz- big businesses CSR time that, and rather than going spending a day painting a granny or digging a garden, which isn't the best use of your skills if you're a marketing specialist, match those skills with what communities need so they can solve the problems better. The businesses feel like they're getting more impact and you, you create a much, much healthier ecosystem of change. So those are kind of the broad areas that we work in. Yeah, it's very interesting. And of course, we know that the guys at Nabley very well. We had Nick Davies on the show a few few weeks back. Uh, interesting that you're working with those guys. Um, I mean, it's a hugely competitive market, isn't it? I mean, these types of kind of adventure activities, away days, designed to get people out of their comfort zones, I guess, and get them into a different headspace. Um, it's a concept, I guess, that's been around for for a while. I mean, is it is it this 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 nature of making sure that that what you're doing when you when you have people uh, come with you on these uh, activities is actually creating real value for them is that is that the, the sort of differentiator for the, for you guys and what sets you apart from from all the others doing this sort of thing yeah i mean i think there there is a there is a thing about real value i mean we joke that you know if customers come in and say but you're more expensive to someone else to say well if you want to if you want to do it for free we'll teach you the skills on how to do it for free so you can do it for free forever mm. and if you don't want to pay anything at all we'll just take a picture with the wetsuit on and you can post it on facebook and pretend you've been ghosting <laughs> Because yeah. you, know, you know, people, we need to ask the customers. You know, what are you actually doing this for? Are you doing it just because you've got a fragile ego and you want to? You know, we don't. It's not the words we use, but are you doing it because you just want to impress your friends, or are you doing because you really want to learn how to be, how to spend good time in nature? And it's although it's taken a while with, for us getting to a point at which, when customers walk into our shop now, you know, their first reaction is, "A, it looks amazing," mm. and we can say we've chosen every single product line in this shop because the people who make it care about mm. planet. So whatever you buy from us, you know it'll be significantly better than 99% of the shops you'll ever see on the UK high street. Mm. And, and so our retail mission is to help people become more conscious consumers. And by right. telling those stories in really gentle, non-pushy, non-ranty ways, it gives, um, it gives people choice to gently reflect on whether or not they want to get engaged in what we're doing rather than feel they're being sold at. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and I think picking up on your point on competition, I mean, there is a lot of competition out there, but there are, you know, in Wales alone, 10% of the adult population are members of at least one environmental organization. Right, right. You know, that's nearly, that's nearly 300,000 people. There's no shortage of people who care. Sure. And we just need to find really effective ways of telling that story so that they can recognize, oh, I care. These people do. I'll choose them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and at a wider level, you know, we're taking our experience of the outdoors to on a huge collaboration project to work with other outdoor providers in wales you know england scotland and in mainland europe to to work out how can we reduce the cost of physical inactivity using the skills that people are already trained in the outdoors mm. at, at scale yeah and and if we pull off the project we're working on now we'd create uh four thousand jobs in the next 10 years okay Okay, and that's and that's the kind of stuff I'm talking to politicians about, and the guys in the team here are building the capacity of in the ground. I have the figures for Wales in, in my mind. So, the cost of physical inactivity in Wales is 650 million pounds a year. The cost of poor mental health is 7.2 billion. And whilst not all of that can clearly be solved just by um, getting people outdoors, there are there are so many opportunities to take away maybe five or ten percent of that cost. Mm. by helping people learn how to play in nature. And at a, at a wider level, I mean, I was talking to a, a university professor yesterday, and he was saying, you know, one of the reasons, you know, in some of the Welsh Valley, some of the poorer communities, people do not want to get healthy. Mm. And they don't want to get healthy because if they got healthy, they'd lose their benefits. Mm. And if they lose their benefits because they haven't got a job, they'd be worse off. So we need to work with that kind of much wider ecosystem of policymakers, treasury, 
finance to say, how can you bridge this process that allows people to get healthy, feel better, not lose, so that overall you get that sort of systems level solution. Yeah, yeah. And there are so many opportunities for an organization like yours and, you know, some of the, the things you're talking about. I mean, if the last 15 years, I mean, how, how has the sort of business evolved in that time? What, what, what did it look like right at the start? Obviously, you've got your, your retail arm as well. But sure. Yeah, what did things look like back then? No, I, think that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's an interesting question. So, so, you know, when I, you know, I was, I was born, I was born about 75 meters away from where I'm speaking now in our, in our offices in St. David's. I traveled for a couple of years, came back here and realized I'd never been anywhere, anywhere physically more special in the world than here. And my first reaction was to say, well, I want, it'd be great to stay here if I can. Mm. And if someone had said to the 21-year-old me, yes, and just remember, you're going to spend your entire life working here. I'd have gone, yeah, right. But with, you know, the combination culture, history, people is an amazing thing. So I've, started, so I've ended up setting a business where my heart wanted to be, which is a really good thing to do. We, I did the only thing that I knew how to do, which is teach surfing. So my first business was a surf school. We evolved from that to doing an adventure business, which you know, did then we started coasteering, we started, you know, we did, we ran a world championship. We met a lot of really interesting people because we knew how to play well. We combined amazing outdoors activities, outdoor activities with great food and late nights in our, in the bar and the hotel we had. And people loved it. And lots of people found their life partners in, in our bar because you meet cool people when you're doing this stuff. And we did consulting work and kind of drank the Kool-Aid of the early 90s about thinking, great, you could be successful and do this and do that. But I'd, I'd always been trying to forge together the connection between environment and action and people in business. Uh. You know, the, the traditional environmental sector with kind of tree huggers and hemp wearers were doing don't do this and don't do that, but could not de- deliver solutions. And that there were no kind of significant corporate programs running. So it took about 10 years to get to a point to which we realized that the skills, the sort of problem solving skills we were using in business could be relevant. In solving the environmental challenges that we've got, and our journey for the last ten years, fifteen years, has been using those pr- skills about you know identifying the real problem, who are the people needed, what are the skills needed, with building the networks and teams that can start to solve stuff. And it's by by working education, we can connect the people that Nick Davis and his team are working on with Nabley. Mm-hmm. So get to get every school if we can get every school in the city. And a bunch of the retailers and the council and the health board working on shared issues, mm. then you'll get ten-year-olds solving problems for loneliness in old people in a way that they would ne- that, they, that the council would never have thought of with those with the presentation of those ideas sharpened by someone from Marks and Spencer who's given up two days a year to help improve the kids' communication skills. Mm. So there's this massive latent potential that now by by connecting people, not trying to own the problem or own the solution, and not be always, or, you know, not be the experts, but be the people who can bring passion and insight. Mm. We've ended up in a kind of not not by planning, but ended up in a place that we've got these sort of the the recreational touch points of you coming in on a weekend wanting to buy a new jacket, and we can say, "Oh, did you know? Have you come across Patagonia before? No, these products have got a you know a lifetime guarantee on them." Oh, that's interesting. Or say these are expensive, and you say, well, they're not actually expensive; they're fair priced because there's a problem about you know labour or everything else. Yeah. Loads of touch points to start conversations, and then the sort of the ends of that are changing the world through kids, and changing and giving the, the people in business and government who want to do things better the the skills, connections, and capability to do more of that. So it's 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 a really yeah. feels like a really special place to be. Yeah, and and the location is everything, isn't it? And it's about how you can kind of shift mindsets uh, by, I guess, getting people out of their 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 comfort zones and their traditional environments. I remember a few years back chatting to the the guys at uh, WWF, and they were they keen to to hold a, an event for CEOs down at the Eden Project, yeah. and uh, just purely for that reason, they wanted to get them out of London to have some headspace to start thinking about how they run their businesses differently. Uh, and it never happened in the end because they just couldn't get enough CEOs to make the trip down there. But uh, I mean, what what what's happening there psychologically among business people specifically? I mean, what do they get by connecting with nature and doing these types of activities and and going to somewhere like St David's? I mean, what what's happening there? 
Well, I, I, I suppose to get to give a uh, to give you know a really fresh example of that. So TYF are uh, one of the founding partners of the Do Lectures, which you've, you know, I'm sure you've come across. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the Do, the Do Lectures finished uh, yesterday afternoon. Right. And you know we had a so we had 150 people, you know, many of them from kind of you know well from all over the world, um, you know, meeting meeting on the west coast of Wales and people going. People saying, you know, I've been saying to my husband since we got married 15 years ago, I hate camping. You know, I don't like nature. And my husband thinks I need therapy when I say I'm going to go and spend four days camping in the rain in a field in West Wales. But when people, I suppose, take time away from their screens yeah. and take time away from their phones just to be still in nature, your brain, your brain literally changes. Yeah. And... I think that it, it takes an it needs an attractive, you know, you need a, a, a an appealing looking flower or a you know a scent or a something that draws people to that. And I think the funny thing is is that not being able to get chief execs to Eden is that they'll go to Cornwall on holiday. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and what, and that's kind of how we sell it is to say you know half a million people a year save up their holiday time to come here to do things with friends and family. Oh. So let's meet you over a surfboard rather than a flip chart. And, and the play for the planet idea, which WWF are a part of, is saying, you know, let's give the best rewards in our business that we possibly can to the people who make it, their lives work to make the world a better place. Mm. So rather than giving discounts to, well, as well as giving discounts to Red Letter Days or whoever the kind of adventure wholesalers are, let's give the same discounts to people who care. Yeah, and it's a really simple, nice way of, you know, build again building that ecosystem so that when the when the when the colleague from WWF comes on holiday, they can tell other customers about WWF and go, "Wow, I never realised I could get a job in digital, in WWF, mm. or procurement or whatever else." So it kind of builds the awareness of what's happening in that space of doing business for good. Mm. Mm. If that, if that kind of makes sense, yeah. So it, and I think the so so teaching people that it's okay to slow down. Because when you slow down, you you think better, and just doing that in a really sincere way that's not doesn't feel hippie. Yeah, so, you know, not, I think an awful lot of damage has been done by things that you know are really really sincere and well intentioned, but just a million miles away from the from the from Canary Wharf mm. or anything else. And it, and it you know it has to feel comfortable for the people who haven't in the past felt comfortable in this space. Yeah, 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 and, and yeah, yeah. Go on. and. No, no. and you do these these sessions called Super Sense, don't you? Where you're, yes. How, how does that work? This is about switching on people's senses they've forgotten how to use, isn't it? Yeah. So there's an amazing guy who's, who did who, who'd been part of the Claw um, Claw Social Program called Andy Shipley, who I met at the Do Lectures a few years back, and we were, we started talking about adventure. And he Andy'd been running a program called Dangerous Business, which was um, taking blind people to do adventure activities like driving tanks or firing bows and arrows or whatever it was, which just sounded amazing. And we talked about the way that people who were partially sighted or blind had a completely different way of interpreting the world that was invisible to people with sight. So with this Super Sense program, what we, what we tried to create was a way of helping people who have, in theory, all of their senses, realize that they don't use most of them for much of the time, and and we do that by doing some wonderful kind of gentle lead exercises. It often in pairs, whatever, where one one partner's got a blindfold on, the other and the other is just making sure they stay safe. For them to realise that they've they've never tried, they've never thought about the difference in leaves or tree bark or soil from the base of touch or smell. No, I, like, I mean literally never even contemplated it. Didn't know it existed mm. because they never didn't know it exist. And couldn't contemplate it. They've not been able to process any information associated with that. Mm. And in a gentle way, translate that to say: if you've never thought about this, about the about the environment that you walk in every single day, is it possible that you don't know what you thought you did about your your the team you work with, your suppliers, your your the people who deliver your contracts for you? Is it possible you've never thought you've never talked to them about what? you might find out if you apply that super sense attentiveness to what really drives them to do business or what they care about or what the problems are or what they've always wanted to say to you but never did. Yeah. And it's been a really profound 
experience of some of the teams you've worked with from environment agency and other businesses to go, wow, we've never had those conversations with people about this mm. ever. And it's, and by taking people to nature, the, to do this, the, the, and the, and nature could be an urban park is just to realize in a really profound, inarguable way that we're, that we're not paying that much attention to the wider things. You know, these, like, over these last few days, we've been eating, eating food that is so fresh it sings on the plate. Mm. And it's only when you pay attention to how fresh, you know, think about, you know, how fresh is that piece of sweet corn that arrived in my shopping basket vacuum packed from being picked in a different country six months ago or whatever. Mm. And the difference in taste and texture that is from something that I've literally picked out of the garden, that we can start to think about the implications between food and place and impact of carbon or mm. you know, so, so the experience experience for us is I suppose a really important part of that learning journey. Mm. And taste, you know, taste, touch, sight, emotion of being in nature, swimming in the sea, feeling it in a, without any power but in power at the same time. Um, as well as the more practical things about helping people, you know, learn about their capability to make change through experience and learning, which yeah. kind of picks up the difference between what you think you do and what you actually do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that the danger for people coming coming along and spending time in nature and, and doing some of the activities that you've been describing is that, um, you know, once they, they get back into the kind of cutthroat business world, as you say, go back to Canary Wharf, uh, the temptation is, you know, they they forget a lot of this stuff, and it, and they go back to kind of their old ways, and they don't they don't start thinking mindfully, they don't start thinking about how they use their senses. How, how do you kind of encourage people to kind of stay in the moment and 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 you know keep some of these things with them when they go back to their organisations? That's again, I think that's a great a great question. So, a few years back, we did a we did a couple of programs for uh, for Body Shop. And a similar sort of level program in terms of management levels for Body Shop and for um, an energy company, right? And and, a, and some PhDs from Oxford and uh, Birmingham Warwick Business Schools evaluated the program, and they found like th- and they they check check within with people before they came down every day during the program and three months afterwards, the people from the energy company, um, let you know three months down the line their performance was worse than it was before they'd met us. Mm. Yeah, so that the program, the program they ran with us, had disempowered the staff, right? And the team at Body Shop felt statistically significantly more committed, more to their team and the business than they were before. And the and the energy, what had happened? The energy company is that the people had gone back to work, and their boss had just said, "Right, well, you've been on holiday for three days," which was not true. Hmm. So just get back on with work. That was it. And the, you know, because the training program that you ran opened their eyes to the possibility of human potential. Right. And how much can be done by working together? And they'd gone back to work and realised that no one cared about that at all. Right. And they they which is never our intention, but they just realised how shit their business was. <laughs> and in doing so, became disenfranchised. Whereas the body shop people had gone back. Their manager had said, "So Tom, how was your how was your week? Tell me about it. What did you learn? What do we need to think about differently?" Mm. And in doing so, continued that process of empowerment. So I think there's a there's a really practical thing that any of us who are managers or leaders can think about. Mm. is to say what are the small things that we can do, tiny things we can do each day to optimize the chance of people doing the right thing today as well as tomorrow. Mm. So I think it's really, really important. And, and that's the equivalent of, you know, if you have a garden at home of just not once every month going and blitzing the garden or weeding it, but every day spending five minutes mm. increases its productive capacity. And I think at a wider level, it's it's really easy to go away from programs that are inspirational and motivational whatever to go right every day i'm going to do this next and i'm going to spend 15 minutes exercising 36 minutes doing yoga and blah and you kind of go realize that that's a lovely idea maybe but it's just not going to happen mm. so, so what we try and do is 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 encourage people just to pick literally one or two things that will increase the chance of good things happening much more often and then just commit to do those once or twice and then notice how they felt and if they felt good, do a bit more of them. And over time, those practices will develop. But anyone who goes away from any program saying, I'm going to do this forever, probably isn't. And that, and that applies both to the really practical things that make change. Yeah. In, in our experience, many people have never been taught how to do that. You know, if you said, right, we, we've got to get this together. 
we've got to get this together. They just don't know. Right. So what I'm, what I commit to do tomorrow is give Tom a call and arrange a meeting to talk about X. Mm. Knowing that if I do call you tomorrow, we get a meeting, something will start. But if I don't commit to call you, it doesn't happen. Yeah. None, none of the rest can happen. So, it's, so sometimes it's really practical how to do stuff. And I think in that wider world of making the world, you know, a radical, radically different place, mm. there are a basic set of tools that probably everyone needs to know that are, you know, how to keep the source sharp. I mean, this is really, really basic stuff that ironically people who've gone through the corporate training machine in the mm. corporates get trained in, you know, in their early graduate years and it becomes a, a core skill. But if you've, you know, if you're in a startup or you've come from the environmental sector, you've probably never learned to do effective problem solving by or design-based thinking or how to do collaborative inquiry or the importance of appreciation or NLP or any of these things. So there's, we need to enrich our own skills so that we make sure that we have the sharpest possible axe mm. when, when we're working on those problems and don't spend unnecessary effort doing things in a clumsy way that could be just much more satisfying as well as as well as more effective yeah yeah and I, and I think there's a project to be done where we pool those skills to say well what's the equivalent of getting people to 30 words a minute and typing but on communication problem solving knowing what's going on so that you can work with people start working with people from a much higher level yeah and as partly technical skills which is not about the environment but just about fixing it and the wider literacy so that if we're talking to if we're talking to leaders particularly in business or in public sector but leaders of organizations what's the minimum we'd like them to know about ocean acidification biodiversity loss mm. um, you know climate sea level rise um, aging health that it's not about being able to name 16 species in latin that have been lost in the last few years mm. but about having a sense about broadly what's the scale of the problem and broadly what are the kind of things that might fix it so that when people talk about that in their surroundings they can go oh yeah that was what tom mentioned the other day that mm. was what wasn't it mm. so, so they can either push you along in the right direction and step out of the way yeah i'm going i don't understand what you're talking about or that can't be done or you know whatever else i mean, measuring the, the impact you're having must be must be really tough because clearly you are having an impact, but it's often you know the intangible, and and I guess a lot of it's anecdotal, isn't it? Uh, I mean, what what are some of the the stories that most excite you when when people kind of give feedback on what they what they're doing differently, having spent time with with TYF? I, I sent a colleague the other day. We had a, a few years back. We had this a letter of complaint. We don't get many of them, and the the, the essence of this letter of complaint was a guy phoned up. He'd, he'd driven all the way from Cambridge. And said, if only, you know, your staff should not have let me just book in for one day. They should have insisted that I came for longer, <laughs> which is a nice letter to get. And he'd come down, he'd come down from Cambridge, five hours drive. So got up at like five o'clock in the morning to go sea kayaking and co-steering. And he, he said, a sea kayaking was lovely. It was just beautiful, you know, a lovely experience. But the co-steering changed his life. And it changed his life because he learned how to play a game. This guy was an archer, and he'd gone from St. David's back to Cambridge. So he you know, didn't get there till 11 o'clock at night and got up at first thing in the morning to go and shoot some arrows on his local field. And in doing so, beat a personal best he hadn't been able to reach, hadn't been able to crack for maybe 10 years. And he realized he was able to do it because he wasn't concentrating on the more his arrows. He was just concentrating on being an archer. And, he'd, and in co-steering, he'd in effect switched on the play button that he'd lost for 10 years. And he was so excited by the accuracy and the fluidity of his shooting that he phoned up his best mate, an archer, and said, you just, you won't believe this, you've got to come and see it. And his friend, you know, getting him out of bed or whatever, <laughs> came up and also broke his personal best because the other guy's enthusiasm and performance was just so inspiring. Yeah. Now, we didn't teach him how to hold his bow better or how to draw his arrows or how to focus on the target or breathe. We created the space where he learned to play a game and in doing so, changed his life. And when we get letters like that, you know, those are the things at an emotional level that keep us going. And at a more practical level, you know, going back to the example earlier from working with, uh, you know, working with Cambridge University and the best students in in the UK, 
at, in Cardiff, you know, these Cardiff six on six on students in learning how to solve problems differently from the guys at Cambridge, saved thirty grand on energy before they even got up the classroom. In effect, mm-hmm. on the day they did the training, because they started saying to teachers, "Hang on, the way you're running this place isn't right. Here's what you need to change." So there are really practical ways of measuring this, and if if we can get effective at that piece of creating, you know, embedding impact-based learning that is focused on solving real problems that matter for real to other people, then in effect, every seven-year-old in the country would be running the energy system in their primary school. Hmm. At eight, they'd be running they'd be running water. Nine, food. With the real budgets, you're talking to real suppliers about real about real things. And and if we can weave behavior change, like the, the persuasion and negotiation, the blackmail, whatever else that they do, with real data about stuff that they can experience, the amount of evidence that they would create that doing XYZ shifts the dial, you know, you build that out over ten or ten or twelve years of schooling, mm. I believe it would be impossible for kids to come out of school not being confident that they knew how to fix stuff. Yeah. And if every kid came out of school knowing that, regardless of whether they choose to work for a corporate or do a startup or work in public sector or for an NGO, the, their ability to contribute to fixing the bigger system would be dramatically improved. And parents would need to either get with the program and get out of the way. Yeah. So so I think the, the, the metrics are sometimes, as you say, purely anecdotal, but... You know, we have you know we have, we have twenty year old customers now whose parents met because we created the space for them to meet, yeah. and that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's the emotional bit, and that's still really big heart. And at the same time, the practical stuff is about where, as a consequence of doing things differently, people take practical actions in business that make a difference around energy, food, design, and you can measure those in, as as you would in a traditional impact measurement way in business. Yeah. So, how do you, as, a, as an organisation, kind of set set your goals? I mean, what do you what do you need to achieve? Is it about, I mean, is it all about scale for you, so that you can have as much kind of impact as as you can, or how do you kind of balance that with your economic ambitions? I mean, how do you, how do you kind of see that? Well, I guess there's there's, there's sort of two, um, two two answers to that. I think that you know one of the things that we teach is that. There are the, you know, the only time you ever start really getting rich is when you appreciate the meaning of the word enough. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, you know, enoughness defines wealth. Mm. You know, I was in a, I was in a school recently. I do some work with a great little charity called Speakers for Schools, and they take business leaders into schools. And I was talking to kids about, you know, how important cars were as data symbols, and how to focus really carefully. There's a group of 15, 16 year olds how to uh, focus really carefully on deciding the car that creates the right image for you and, um, and pay really close attention to it. And, uh, and I was talking about my 225-800 that I've got, the silver car I had plugged outside. Talk, 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 and said my 225-800, it describes, by the way, the, the number of miles, it's number of thousand miles it's done and how much it's worth. So I drive, I drive a battered old car that's done two hundred twenty-five thousand miles. That's worth eight hundred quid. <laughs> yeah, and and saying to them, you can choose to buy a car that you can't afford, and spend a day a week working to bait to you know working to try and impress people who don't care for you in the first place, or buy what's functionally appropriate, the enough bit, and buy time instead. Mm. And so enough. To, I think enough is about both enough impact. You know, because none of us can change the world by ourselves. So, that, and, we, and it's important that we pay attention to family and relationships and children and staying fit and well. And it's, so, enough defines wealth at one level. So, for us, yes, at one level, there's never enough impact. But the scale that we need to get to is uh, is is the right scale for us, I suppose, to create to create the tools that allow other people to create impact. You know, if we if we dramatically scaled our business and had adventure businesses all across Wales or UK or whatever, our focus would be just on, on the operational stuff that allows that to happen. Mm. By staying small but not but big enough to you know big enough to make impact, we can focus our whole effort on building the things that allow other people to do that. 
So, but so you know, a, health, a natural health product by getting people active outdoors will involve working with maybe three hundred other businesses, whereby we we help we you know we catalyze the building of the tools that allow all of them to grow their businesses doing that because we don't need the money in the first place because we keep our we keep our overheads low, keep our costs low, and and by helping other people succeed as well. They'll, become, they'll still come and hang out with us and go co-steering sometimes or spend money in our shop. They'll help us build our ecosystem. But if our, if our focus is on enough, then it, it just seems to work in a really different way. Uh, whereas the impact bit is about, you know, by, by working with other people and giving them the confidence that they can make impact, ironically, our impact probably gets greater rather than less. Well, listen, Andy, thank you very much for, for sharing the, the TYF story. Um, very interesting to see what, what you guys get up to next. I'd love to come down and, and do a bit of co-steering at some point. That'd be wonderful. But uh, I'm sure there's so much people can learn from, from just getting out of their business for a while and coming down to St. David's and, uh, and spending time doing that sort of thing. Um, so thanks for, sh- for sharing it with us. No, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure, Tom. It's an open invitation for you to come down and do a do a live waterproof recording um, <laughs> that we can, you know, and, and explain. I mean, and maybe we, maybe we uh, bring together a, a group of people to explore some of those questions about why is time and nature important. That'd be lovely to do. We bring a posse of speakers down one time and, you know, come and, and to any, to anyone listening to the podcast, you know, if you're ever in St. David's or in West Wales, you know, knock on the door and there'll either be a cold beer on the fridge or a, a coffee waiting for you. Cause we want to build the networks that make this happen. Thank you so much for the opportunity to, to share this with you. Andy Middleton, co-founder of TYF there, a man that sounds as if he really enjoys what he does, and why wouldn't you? I mean, especially down there in, in beautiful St. David's on the, the Welsh coast. Uh, a great business, I'm sure you agree. You can find out more about Andy and the TYF uh, organisation in today's show notes. Head over to betterbusiness.show for that. And I'm sure Andy meant what he said. It'd be great to convene a posse of Better Business Show listeners uh, and get a group of us down there to, to take part in some of that stuff. So if you're interested in making that happen, then uh, then get in touch in, in the usual ways. I'm on I'm on Twitter at Tom Idle. You can email me Tom Idle at narrativematters.co.uk. Um, right, it's time to get a brief update on the news from across the world of sustainable business. So let's find out who's doing what and why with Vicky Knowles. Vix, welcome back. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, thanks, Tom. How are you? I'm very well, very well. Enjoying the sunshine for once. It is beautiful. Have you had a nice weekend? <clears throat> I've had a great weekend, yeah. Lots of uh, lots of getting down to the, the seaside and uh, eating outside, which is wonderful. But uh, yeah, it was very nice, thank you. Yourself? Yes, very nice. A lot of time in the sunshine. I got a bit burnt, actually. <laughs> it's just unexpected. <laughs> it is, it is. Well, listen, let's crack, let's crack on with our, this week's stories. There's lots to get through. And um, let's start with uh, something you spotted about uh, these edible bars made from uh, beer waste. Yes. So um, we've talked before about beer made from wastewater. Um, but what if you could eat beer? Um, so this time I've come across beer waste being turned into granola bars. Um, So a six-pack of beer produces a pound of spent grain, and this messy grain can constitute as much as 85% of a brewery's total byproduct. It often ends up in compost or landfill. So what if there was a better way to use it? Well, the boys at Regrained, a startup in the Bay Area of San Francisco, have come up with a solution turning into these bars. Having tried the leftover oatmeal-like substance back in their underage brewing days, (laughs) they thought it tasted pretty good, and the grain has... Um, only about 10% of its original sugar, but the same amount of protein and fiber. So regrained work with three small urban breweries at the moment in the San Francisco area. And from one day's beer production of a small on-site brew pub, the startup can make 15,000 granola bars from the spent grains. So imagine how much of this potential food source is going to waste every day. Um, some six billion pounds of grain are used by the brewing industry in the US alone. So that, that puts some perspective on it. Um, it's a really good little interview on Food Rush, so definitely worth checking out in the show notes. It is, okay. And a spent grain is something we obviously spoke about when we, we spoke with uh, Heineken. Uh, huge issue for, for breweries, as you say, and, and storing that spent grain and, or selling it out to sort of local farms logistically can be tough. So, yeah, a company willing to take that waste off their hands and using it 
to make something useful is always welcome. I like the idea that these guys started off making beer during their college days, and then they obviously discovered that this was a problem, and they have found a solution, and I guess that's what it's all about, isn't it? Well worth checking this story out. Um, and as you say, yeah, this this appeared in the Food Rush, uh, which looks like a, a new sort of magazine on the market uh, for anyone interested in food and technology and sustainable agriculture. Uh, again, as Vic said, I'll, I'll put the links in in, uh, in today's show notes of the, the sample issues. It looks like an interesting read, actually. Uh, so we'll do that. Um, yeah, so so second from me, there's been a, a real drive for companies to start considering their natural capital. So how much they rely on natural assets, raw materials, natural infrastructure, uh, and to start measuring it and, and putting a price on it. And and we have that now with if, if in the form of natural capital protocol, which launched last week, uh, which gives companies a standard, common way of of starting this process, helping you identify and measure. And, and value impacts and dependencies on natural capital. Uh, it's been a good few years in the making, and now there's about 40 of the world's biggest companies, Coca-Cola, uh, Doe Chemical, Hugo Boss, Kering, Nestle, all allowed access to an initial draft of this protocol. Um, and it's it's very much the, the sort of brainchild of the Natural Capital Coalition, which has been aided by a, a whole bunch of different partners and supporters who, who want to see big businesses taking action in this area. Uh, but the coalition says the protocol can help companies in their decision making and can be used for a range of applications including risk management, exploring new revenue streams, improving products, uh, value chain innovation as well as preparing for future reporting and disclosure. Uh, so there's plenty been written about this development in the last week or so. Uh, largely positive reviews, uh, I guess anything that can help to, to standardise reporting on this, this type of stuff which is, has never been, you know, never been done before. Uh, so it's, it's very helpful and I guess this is a very welcome step. I'll, I'll put the link in today's show notes uh, so you can have a look at the protocol if you want to check it out and make use of it or, or find out a bit more. Yeah, it's quite big news, isn't it really? Um, it's great that rather than just you know businesses being probed to consider natural capital in their business decisions, um, they've been given the tools or framework or protocol to do that. Um, do you think it'll take off? Do you think it'll um, work I, out? I I think it will. I think so much has been uh, has been done in this area over the last maybe five six years, and there is a real real willingness. And this is all about risk. I mean, this is about companies uh, trying to understand um, where where the risks are in the, particularly in their supply chains. So uh, this is absolutely crucial. They need to understand this stuff. Um, uh, and often it is going to be you know the leaders that that, that start this process. Uh, but I, I think that the others will will definitely follow suit in the in the years to come. Yeah, definitely. I think it did say as well that the um, the businesses have uh, input in before it's finalised, so they can make it really useful to them as well. Yeah, they've all been working together on this over the last last week. So it's a, you know, it's a true collaborative effort uh, in, in in getting this protocol uh, to the to the point where it is today. Uh, and yeah, they, it all needs to work for for these companies in terms of how they report and and how they kind of uh, you know use it in their decision making internally. So uh, yeah, huge welcome step. Uh, yeah, so my other story um, this week is an article in the Harvard Gazette in, uh, titled Turning the Brain Green and questions whether a better understanding of the brain's reward system could help us avoid environmental disaster. So Harvard Medical School professor and neurosurgeon Anne-Christine Duham suggests that this is indeed possible. So while research finds that humans are wired for hoarding, so cars, general stuff, uh, or collecting more things than we immediately require, um, other traits could help us with conservation. So this isn't really new, but it's, a, I guess, a good reminder um, of how we work. So, for example, framing a request uh, like skipping daily fresh towels in hotel rooms can trigger the brain's reward system. So as soon as they say, oh, 75% uh, of people who use this room hang up their towels, more people are likely to follow suit compared to saying, please help us keep the earth clean. Um, and the same applies to utility bills, comparing your usage with your neighbours. Um, so besides us collecting stuff, which helped us to survive, so did competitive and pro-social rewards. Um, so it's definitely a, a good way to work with our nature rather than labelling people selfish, for example. Yeah, um, yeah. And the article is based around a talk by Duhem called The Neurobiology of Sustainable Behaviour. Um, so you can check out the video at the bottom of the article. I haven't actually seen it yet, but um, I do plan to. Interesting. And there, there's been lots of sort of research into 
overconsumption and what actually goes into our heads when we're making certain decisions. Uh, I mean, it's something we, we talked briefly about in today's show with, uh, with Andy Middleton, uh, looking at how sort of mindsets can be changed and how we can sort of better connect with the environment. Um, but yeah, and again, it's something we've discussed with, with Tara Button when we had her on the show. And, uh, you know, you'll remember that she, that she runs Buy Me Once, a website dedicated to products that, you know, are built to la- last. Uh, and we had that conversation about how you change mindsets and the fact that people need to sort of unlearn everything about, you know, what they've been taught about needing and wanting more and more. Uh, so, yeah, interesting study. And again, we'll, we'll link in into today's show notes to, uh, for you to have a look at. But uh, yeah, thanks for that, Vix. <laughs> So, so lastly for me this week, uh, I've been re- writing a piece this week for uh, for Virgin.com where I explored the power of a crisis and how companies like uh, Chipotle and, and Volkswagen have ridden the wave of their own respective CSR sustainability crises in the last in the last year or so. Fascinating stuff, and you know, and a lot of my work, and I'm, I'm sure similar with you, Vix, is about encouraging companies to start telling positive stories rather than always being in that kind of uh, reactive mode of firefighting uh, mm. being on the on the back foot uh, but there's been plenty of tension on, on tesla in the last couple of weeks uh, obviously the company that everyone loves to love um, and it is tesla's response to a crisis which is getting uh, quite a few people excited right now there's been two widely publicized crashes involving tesla cars one was a fatal accident that sparked much much discussion about whether its technology had actually failed uh, and the other accident left the driver and passenger injured. Uh, the car maker says that there's no evidence to support the fact that its autopilot technology had a role to play. I'm not too sure how autopilot works. Um, but the way in which it's responded specifically, I think, has called into question the level of compassion that the business has shown and also throws a light you know on the sort of the nature of compassion and whether companies are actually particularly good at being human and showing compassion uh, basically tesla posted a blog responding to the events and it goes into plenty of detail this blog about one of the, the crash incidents and it's immediately in that sort of defensive mode as you know as i guess you might expect it to be but you know it's defending the kind of autopilot function in its model s uh, it says it's the first known fatality in just over 130 million miles where autopilot has been activated. Uh, and then it sort of gives some stats about how many you know different fatalities are responsible uh, or sort of cars are responsible for across America, across the world. And then it's not until the very last paragraph where the the guy that lost his life, Joshua Brown, is actually mentioned. And I think that's the crucial part, which seems to have racked up the most column inches here. Uh, about Tesla and its its founder uh, Elon Musk, um, and it, it's done them no favors at all. But yeah, fascinating kind of uh, pieces being written about this. I don't know if you've seen this this news, Vix. Yes, I have, and I also found it fascinating. Um, interestingly, I, I don't have it in front of me at the minute, but I don't even remember if they actually put his name in there. From what I remember, it said like the customer who died in the crash, and um, rather than his name, and how yeah. he was a friend to the EV community and it just sounded a bit like these were the reasons why it was sad because he was a customer and he was you know pro electric vehicle um but yeah I definitely agree like um being measured in the response reflects like a faith in the business and what is objectively true so I think if you're on the defense it sounds a bit like you're you're concerned yourself about what's actually happened Exactly, exactly. So lessons to be learned from, from Mr. Musk and his, his comms team, no doubt. Uh, but that's it for this week, Vix. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, yeah, plenty going on out there in the world of sustainable business. Uh, join us again next week, won't you, for, uh, for more? I will do, of course. There's always more. <laughs> Good stuff. I'll speak to you next week. So for this month, we've got a new segment of the show looking at uh, some big ideas for a sustainable future. We've been working with the team over at Terrafinity, which is a consultancy that specialises in in helping companies develop leadership in ecological, social and business value. Uh, and we've helped them launch a brand new series of ebooks which offer 
big ideas, thoughts, provocations for how we might create a sustainable future on a planet of 9 billion people. So we've been asking Joss Tantrum, a founder of uh, Terrafinity, to share with us his best big ideas, all taken from this brilliant series of new books. Uh, and we've got the third part for you today. Uh, this time, Joss explores the principles for putting sustainable value at the heart of economic price. Here's Joss. Current economic models need radical reinvention if they are to support our species successfully through the volatility of the coming decades. Economic and financial models with conceptual roots dating back centuries were not designed to deal with the global pressures presented by resource scarcity, population growth and the impacts on the functioning of natural systems caused by pollution of air, land and water. The design and efficiency of current industrial processes in terms of the use of energy and material consumption are woefully inadequate to meet the demands of the majority of the Earth's current population of 7 billion people. Huge pressures are placed upon food production, water availability and the climate. The continued availability of scarce resources threatens to limit existing models of manufacturing and therefore future market potential. The human population is set to grow to more than 9 billion by 2050. What sort of world do we want them to come into? One of scarce resources and extreme competition for the basic elements of survival? Or one in which they are able to build stable and meaningful lives for themselves and their children? As a species, we're capable of conceptualising and achieving great things, moving mountains, feeding populations, greening deserts and making leaps of imagination and innovation. In addition, many technical, behavioural and social solutions already exist, which could be used to deliver radically more sustainable production and consumption models. A sustainable future requires coordinated will and intent, together with an alignment of private and common interests. This can be achieved by prioritising behaviour in markets, business and societies that recognises long-term social and ecological implications and benefits. Long-term positive behaviours must be valued and suitably priced in our economic and financial systems. The time has come to build a world where we can welcome 9 billion people rather than fear their arrival. A sustainable world of 9 billion capable citizens by 2050 is an ambitious vision and a powerful driver for the development of economies, businesses and societies. Such a world also represents a market for business unparalleled through human history. It would align the interests of individuals, societies and business organically through common self-interest. Today, even the world's largest companies only supply goods and services to less than half the planet's population. It is in the interests of business, citizens and societies as a whole to increase the number of economically active and capable people, as this equates to greater productivity, larger markets and the creation of long-term value. It would also provide the growth of economic, social and natural capital. There are two key changes required in the way that markets function that are required to deliver this vision. Firstly, a shared strategic goal for markets. Rather than a real coordinated mass effect of capitalism, Adam Smith's invisible hand is instead a post hoc rationalisation of the sum of a multitude of individually motivated market actions, not the actions of individuals subscribing to a shared grand plan. Markets lack shared strategic intent. A lack of coordinated intent makes the delivery of strategic outcomes difficult and to an extent explains why global objectives such as the Millennium Development Goals and other international accords have been difficult to achieve in practice. They exist outside or in addition to the daily priorities of capitalism rather than as an integral part. Towards 9 billion is designed to address this issue through introducing a clear and economically meaningful purpose to market and business activity, the achievement of a vastly larger and more sustainable market, one which would also provide greater well-being and long-term common good as an innate aspect of its operation. A shared vision provides a goal for aspiration and also allows clear judgments to be made about whether market or company behaviour is likely to achieve that vision or to undermine it. So what goal exactly should markets share? Over the next 40 years to 2050, markets should seek to deliver healthy and thriving ecosystems and a global human population of 9 billion capable citizens. The second change is to evolve price to equal sustainable value. Towards 9 billion also requires simple but fundamental changes to the irreducible heart of economics, the price function. All economic behaviour flows from the price function. 
which is the ability to generate a price for a good or service which allows it to be bought, sold and traded. At present the price function is too one-dimensional. It reduces the physical reality and mind-boggling complexity of ecological systems to the simplistic binary metrics of supply and demand, completely failing to adequately reflect or consider long-term human or ecological value. The consequences of the failure of price to reflect such value presents clear existential threats to the continuation of our current model of capitalism. The prospects and security of the developed world and the legitimate hopes for improved quality of life for everyone else. Not to mention the destruction of the very fabric of life which supports and subsidises human existence in the first place. The stakes are <clears throat> high. Joss Tantron, founding partner of Terrafinity there. The Towards 9 Billion ebook series is out now and can be downloaded for free at the Terrafinity website, www.terrafinity.com. And we'll have more of Joss next week for part four in the series. Anyway, that's it for another week. Thanks again for tuning in. Please don't forget to spread the word about the show uh, and you subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud or any one of the other apps that we uh, we currently are on. Uh, so please do that if you haven't already done so. We'll be back again next Monday. So until then, goodbye.